Hi, I'm Daniel Zwerdling. And I'm David Shipler. Two reporters start now. Our guest today is a doctor. She treats some of the tens of millions of people in this country who have trouble getting enough to eat every year. And I'll repeat that. Tens of millions of people in America have hunger problems. And the physical impacts of hunger help cause some of the biggest problems that affect America's students. These are under-recognized sources of a lot of the developmental and behavioral problems that we see often in schools, particularly in inner cities and, and in rural areas. That's Megan Sandal. She's co-director of the GROW Clinic for Children and Their Families at the Boston Medical Center. We talked with Megan in Chapter 1 of this podcast. She told us about children who come to her clinic right there in Boston, who look half their age because they don't get enough to eat. And one of the things that struck me, Dave, is that um, this reminded me of a lot of parts of Africa I've been to. I was stationed there, as you recall, for four years. And Megan said that kids here in America don't go hungry because of just one or even two reasons. She says there's this complicated web of social and economic problems that damages their bodies, and often it's permanent. So for instance, a lot of the research early on that I did was in lead poisoning and kids who were exposed to lead. And so when you start to look at the overlap between, say, housing quality and food insecurity, those are often the same families. So how much are you pulling apart the fact that it is lead that may be the issue or is the food insecurity? And to complicate that further, how interrelated they are, iron and lead are absorbed in the same pathway, right? And so as you think about that, if you are iron deficient, you create more receptors. You're, you're iron hungry. You're looking for iron wherever you can find it. And then you're in an environment where there's a lot of lead. So guess what? You absorb the lead more because your body is hungry for that heavy metal. And so part of the treatment, actually, for kids who are lead-exposed is iron therapy. You know, I, I, you know, this is really important to me, and Danny and I both have talked about it. It's frustrating, frankly, to see the, the mainstream press, while reporting on hunger, somehow missing this particular aspect. Because hunger is not just, you know, the kind of thing that a lot of us feel late in the afternoon when we want to snack. You know, it's not just a passing inconvenience or discomfort. It's a serious problem that can have lifelong consequences. My hunch is that most people in Congress who vote on these bills, on SNAP, on housing subsidies, really don't understand that. I mean, they, they probably don't get that what they're doing, they're making decisions that are going to have lifelong consequences. Again, as I said, the sequence of events is your first underweight but your height for age is appropriate and your brain growth is appropriate and you're developmentally on track. Most times in the, as you become more stunted in your growth, you start to also see detriment in cognitive function. And some of that pathway is through vitamins and other um, micronutrients. And then the key is, is that how much that is undoable in terms of your ability to get, say, your stunting resolved, do you get that cognitive catch-up? And that is very much time-sensitive. So if you are, say, caught up by like age two, you tend to do better in your cognitive function long-term. 
But if you are persistently stunted or it takes you longer to get back to that growth curve, that's where you may see persistent effects because you've missed out on that brain growth. And therefore, it is um, therefore much harder to see that catch up both in, in growth physically and also mentally. This, this is a good moment, I think, to, to do something we kind of skipped over, and that is for you to tick off a few of the most important ways that this, okay. these sorts of lifestyles. Lifestyles, is that the right word you wanna choose? No, you correct me, food insecurity. Yeah, I think, yeah. you know, as we unpack this kind of concept of food insecurity, I think it's important to lift up a couple of really important themes. I think the first is um, there's a lot of judgment on what choices of food people make. And before you talk about that, I just wanna say, Megan, so when I said lifestyle, cause I don't want you to be angry at me. <laughs> I didn't in any way whatsoever suggest that this is the way you want to live. I just meant this web. I would, couldn't think of a word for the web of factors that make you live the way you do. I've, I've heard it a lot where like people are like, well, if we just taught them better how to shop, that's the solution, right? Or we're going to do cooking classes for people on Snap. That's the solution. And that's where I really cringed because years ago I was doing a story on a Native American reservation in uh, in the Dakotas, and I was visiting a family and their government-built housing, government-subsidized housing, and I said, would it be all right with you if I go you know, through your kitchen and look at what's in the cabinets? And they said, that's fine. And as I opened the cabinets, I was thinking inside, you know, if somebody could just teach them to eat better, because there was the instant mashed potatoes and the, you know, cheese puffs, which I love. Mm -hmm. And I was feeling if only somebody taught them to eat, you know, beans and fresh fruits and vegetables. No, I mean, I laugh about it now, but I feel guilty mm. about that. Would you want somebody to tell you what food you had in your shelf? Like, would you want somebody to say, this is what you're going to eat today, or this is what you're going to eat tomorrow, and, and good luck figuring out how to use it? And and I just, like, I, I want to sort of push back a little bit on this idea that, like, that's the knowledge gap, right? Like, is that really the gap? Because I, I do feel like, you know, my patients oftentimes will tell me that they make the food choices that are available to them. I think, you know, one of the things that I think a lot of people may judge on is, is fast food. And, and I think part of it is, like, if you have a limited dollar and you're spending it and you need to make sure your kids actually eat the food because there is not an option to, to have a second choice, Right. You're not going to like make one meal and then your kid doesn't like it. So you make a second meal. There's one bite at the apple um, in terms of, of what you're going to get to eat. And so for a lot of families, they end up in these really weird situations where they make food choices because they want to make sure their kid eats. And then I think the last one is, is when you are not sure where your next meal is coming from, you overeat, right? And so there's a lot of real pushback of how can you be food insecure and be overweight, well, guess what? If you are if you're have unpredictable access to food, you will overeat when food is available because you're, you, you're stocking up for the time when you're not going to have food. And, and again, those are system failures, not personal failures. It, it just comes down to money, right? And, and to an extent, you know, we keep proving the same theorem is that if you are really low income, you are going to face a bunch of different threats to your health. And, and, and we can, we can try and tease apart, right? You know, was it the food insecurity or was it the lead exposure or was it the housing instability? But, but the reality is, is that it just comes down to money. Um, 
and and we've proven pretty well that when people have more money, they're healthier. Um, most recently for me, it was the uh, expanded unemployment, right? So I had a patient whose mom was working uh, three jobs, honestly, before the pandemic. She had two jobs and then she had her side hustle, she said. And she lost both jobs and then was unemployed. And she was doing actually pretty well. The child was actually growing better than she had before the pandemic um, because mom was getting the expanded unemployment. And then sure enough, it ended in July. And when I did the weight check in August, this child had lost weight. Well, the child was three years old. I mean, this is like, this is a big deal. You're expecting to grow at three. Not only did she not grow, she actually lost weight. And this is the critical period you were talking about, about brain development, right? Yeah. This is where like you start to, to try and get this kid back growing on their trajectory. Because again, her body has demonstrated that when you get enough calories, her body has the ability to grow. And in this case, we were seeing how a policy resulted in fewer calories and resulted in her not being able to grow as well. We are chatting today with Dr. Megan Sandel. She co-directs the Grow Clinic at Boston Medical Center. It, 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 there's no question. I mean, in, in my own interviewing of people from my book, The Working Poor, I, it was obvious to me that an infusion of cash would have helped a lot in almost every family. I mean, so that leads into the question if you had a magic wand and uh, you could change the system, well, I think that uh, I have become much more interested in, frankly, things like universal basic income, child monthly and allowances. I think that as we think about it, designing systems, we often design them from a savior point of view instead of an, an equity empowered point of view. And, and that's a, a framework distinction that the National Institute of Child Health Quality has come up with. That can, I, can you I explain really think... that? Savior versus... So a savior um, system is one where we say, I want to help you. So I'm going to have SNAP help you with your food. And I'm going to have another place for you to apply for a housing voucher. And I'm going to have a third place for you to apply for the home energy assistance and a fourth place to apply for childcare and a fifth place to apply for um, job training, and a sixth place to apply for, um, uh, let's say, uh, health insurance. So you have this like, like six different systems essentially asking for the same information, but we're trying to help you. So, so we've designed that system, and we think that we're making it you know, as helpful as possible. And the parents often have to go to each to separate office buildings in different parts yeah. of the city to apply for these programs. Exactly. Whereas an equity empowered system is where you would sit down with a family and be like, how can we best design a system to help you? And most of the time, when you really added up all the administrative costs of administering six different systems, you start getting to actually where it is actually probably cheaper and more efficient to just give people money. So I, I do think that that more and more, I, I think that we have to be about economic mobility, allowing people to build assets, because every one of the systems I just named, whether it be SNAP or health insurance or housing or childcare, they do not allow you to build a savings account. As soon as you build a savings account, you're no longer eligible. 
Seriously? Seriously. Like, is there a cutoff? Like, if you assets that put you over the over the limit, yeah, it's like a thousand dollars. Like, it's it's some it 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 is an extremely low income. So, if I save more than a thousand dollars, I can't get these programs. You get cut off. Wow. So, so you think about that, right? Like, we're trying to have people not need these programs, right? They're supposed to be safety net to catch you up when you are there, and yet they regularly trap you. Because our research at Children's Health Watch shows that when your income goes up and you lose SNAP, your health gets worse. People don't understand that in our effort to decrease fraud and make sure that you're eligible and make sure you're deserving of the program, we have made the programs traps. There's an under, I think there's an underlying uh, reason for that uh, in this American culture that we regard poverty as a moral failing. I'm not sure there's any other country that does that, actually. Maybe not. Not that I'm aware of. Uh, so somehow there's something wrong with you if you're poor because the American dream is that everyone who wants to prosper can prosper. So that's the, that's under, that underlies this whole you know, kind of patronizing, uh, punitive approach in our uh, systems or various systems, but it it looks like the the child tax credit that's just been passed is a basic change in a way. And please explain it to people who haven't yet really read the details. Yeah. So what's really exciting about the child tax credit is is it is money dedicated to families with young children and gives them uh, you know in most cases several thousand dollars annually to be able to to buy basic things for children to thrive, right? And ironically, this is something that's been pretty well studied. They've actually done randomized control trials in giving families $3,000 a year to see whether or not the kids do better. And the answer is yes. Resoundingly, they do better with more money. They buy books and they send kids to summer camp and they have better food and things that are, are frankly seem like pretty basic items to most people. And yet for a lot of families are outside of what they can afford. I think most people don't realize that, you know, almost half of all U.S. children live in families that make less than $50,000 a year and oftentimes have significant housing costs, transportation costs, and other things that make a lot of those basic things unavailable. And so the child tax credit is, I think, an, an incredible boost because it potentially lifts 25% of U.S. kids out of poverty. When you talk about, you know, the solution really is to give people more money. I can imagine some listeners thinking, okay, but come on, let's be real here. If you give more money to some families, you know, the parents will spend it on drugs instead of food, right? Or alcohol, what do you say to them? I hate to say it. In, in this time and age, I just think you have to really question wh what family are you picturing? Wh what do they look like? What, what color is their skin? And I think that, that it is part of you know, my own journey trying to be anti-racist is to really question a lot of those assumptions and, and to really ask those hard questions because... In my experience, my patients want the same thing for their kids that, that I want for my own. We, you were talking about the racial overtones of the 
patronizing or punitive approach to people, the the assumption that they're not, not going to make good decisions and whatnot. So I think it's worth pointing out some statistics that uh, since the pandemic began, the Census Bureau has been doing a weekly household survey on food insecurity. The last one I saw showed that 22% of white families were food insecure. 22%. 36% of blacks, 34% of Hispanics, 21% of Asians. The idea that when we speak of poverty or hardship uh, socioeconomically, people of color automatically come to mind is really disconnected from the reality. I had an experience when I was working on my race book, A Country of Strangers, of being in uh, Gadsden, Alabama, and talking to a black councilman there, city councilman. He's the only black on the city council. There was some issue about um, welfare payments or something, and I can't remember the details. But the black councilman uh, wanted to persuade some of his white colleagues to vote in a certain way, and he took one of them to the welfare office uh, one morning when he knew there'd be a lot of welfare applicants and clients there. Uh, to show him what he knew would be the case, which was that most of the people there were, were going to be white. And sure enough, and when <laughs> when the white councilman walked in, you know, his jaw dropped and uh, he had a revelation. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it is shocking to people when you make sure they understand that the largest group of people that are food insecure in this country are white. And while we're talking about stereotypes, among the the white families that are food insecure, I think a lot of people are going to think, Ah, Appalachia. Uh, most white hunger is not in Appalachia. It's in the suburbs, the inner ring suburbs outside of cities. So when we talk about, oh, we need to, you know, enforce things on SNAP because of the, you know, quote unquote, those people, let's just be clear on who it benefits or doesn't benefit in the total numbers are white people. And I worry a lot in, in the coverage of it that almost always the family that gets interviewed or the family that is featured just reinforces that implicit bias, that, that, that story of, of who is benefiting and, and who is not. And, and I do think that we need to get a lot more real about it because I think otherwise um, uh, we're not going to have view this as a collective problem. There is this kind of idea that like somehow if it's the other we are not going to necessarily invest in it. And I, I just think that we all benefit when we're food secure. Well, Megan Sandal, thank you so much. Thanks very this much. It's just so great to talk to you. Well, thank you. Thanks, guys. Keep up the good work. Dr. Megan Sandal is co-director of the GROW Clinic for children and families with food insecurity at Boston Medical Center. And that's it for this episode of Two Reporters. You'll find us on Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, or pretty much any of the leading podcast sites. And we hope you'll check out more of our work at tworeporters.org. I'll repeat that, tworeporters.org or tworeporters.net. I'm Daniel Zwerdling. And I'm David Chipler. Please join us again soon for another episode of Two Reporters. Thanks. Bye-bye.